Last week, or two weeks ago, we were reading in, in uh, Acts chapter 2, and we were finishing up in the, in the book of Acts chapter 2. And let's pick it up again from verse 43. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them, with, sharing with all as anyone might have need. And we talked about how there were these signs going on by the hands of the apostles. And this verse about selling everything you have and, and, and sharing with one another is often quoted by young people and saying that this is what people ought to do. And we looked specifically at this and we saw what happened in the Jerusalem church that it became impoverished. And in, in uh, the book of Corinthians, Paul is taking up donations for the Jerusalem church. And the instruction to rich people is not to do this. Actually, the instruction to rich people in, in, in the epistles is to be generous, to be giving. And that's the instruction to rich. To, and not to rely on their wealth for their spiritual well-being. And in fact, riches, riches without godliness can be real destruction to a home, real destruction to a family. You know, we, we were, my family was on vacation last week in Hilton Head Island, and my parents have retired there, and we usually go and stay there with them for a week every year. And, and just to see and to hear about, you know, many families that are very wealthy, and just the troubles that come upon them, the troubles that happen to their children, and, and, and the disasters that occur to have money without godliness is actually brings in great trouble. And so it talks about the need to be generous, and we covered that last time. Now let's move into verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this seems like quite a church, this early church in Jerusalem. It says that they, they, were, they were continuing with one mind together in the temple. So together in the temple, they were, they were continuing with one mind. And so you'd say, hey, you, you know, this church was, was really all together. They had one heart, one mind. But it's interesting, it didn't stay there. Churches are that, these dynamic entities. They're like families. And... I think most of us have probably grown up in families, and families have different dynamics and different troubles arise and different things arise, and, and I'll tell you something about my home. In case you didn't know, I'm not the quiet, laid-back type. <laughs> Surprise! And what happens is when you get people of intensity in a family, there's intense interactions that occur. And, and because of that, you, you know, there's this dynamic that goes on and there's people who come in sometimes that are passive and they hear the dynamic of what's going on and they're like, whoa, what's wrong with this family? It's just the dynamic of the family. Churches have different dynamics too. At this time, at the beginning of this church in Jerusalem, they were continuing with one mind in the temple. So actually they were meeting in the temple. So there was no problem with 
Jews that had become believers to meet in the temple. The temple compound was actually extremely large and different groups would meet in different corners of the temple and they'd share and Jesus often shared in the temple compound and there was no problem. There was no problem with this at this stage in the church. And they were all of one mind. How convenient. And families are often of one mind, but not all the time. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, there was great trouble that arose within the church. There was this, 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 these problems that arose and, and uh, great contentions arose actually in, 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 uh, and in the church of Jerusalem and specifically in the church. It says in Acts chapter 15 verse 1, So some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas, and when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So there were troubles in this church in Antioch. They went down and they go down to Jerusalem and then it brings trouble into the church in Jerusalem. They can't figure out what to do. And then finally they figure out what to do. So just because a church is of one mind and then next week it's no longer of one mind, something comes up in the church, you don't leave the church. Just like you don't leave your family when there's disagreement within a family. It is a family. You work this thing out. I mean, Shereen and I don't always agree on things. In fact, a lot of times we don't agree. But we're committed to the marriage. We're committed to make this thing work. It's the same with our churches that we're in. You commit to make this thing work. At one time you may be of one mind and then churches have different dynamics and things come up and there's disagreements that occur. And it says, and they were breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and with sincerity of heart. Oh, how blissful. I mean, this is how churches ought to be. You want to have a New Testament church, you ought to take your meals together with gladness. And there should be no troubles. You should always be of one mind. And it should all be like that because a real church should be like that. Well, you know, if you look over in Acts chapter 6. It says in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, this is the Jerusalem church. Now at that time, there were disciples who were increasing number and a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because the widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. The same church, a problem arose that they weren't feeding some of the widows who were, who were uh, uh, converts to Judaism. So these were converts to Judaism They had then received the Lord, and people weren't feeding them because they didn't like this kind of, this group of people. Imagine a church like that, you know, that doesn't feed a certain group of widows because it doesn't like their ethnicity. That was the Jerusalem church. That was this church that says they were sharing their meals together with gladness, with sincerity of heart. So churches have different struggles, different things occur in churches. And if every time you disagree, you're going to get up and go to another church, the problem is really yours, not the problem with the church. Because you're going to get up and go to another church. You know what God's going to do? As soon as you get comfortable in that church, the church is going to say something from the pulpit that you don't agree with. Then you go, oh, I'm going to have to move churches again. And you're going to spend your life going from church to church. Every place that Shireen and I have lived in, and, and we got married in New York, went to school then in, at Purdue University in Indiana, and then Wisconsin, and then Stanford, and then I taught at South Carolina before coming to Texas. And we were for years in each one of these places. 
We joined a church and we stayed with that church. Things happened and there were dynamics going on, but we stayed with the church. And if you want to get up and move each time, it brings really troubles. Because all these things will follow you. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, uh, one of the things that often comes up is, is churches, churches grow. And because they grow, they have to have building campaigns. If you're in a church that doesn't have a building campaign, the church is having trouble. Because it's not growing. So what happens is during a building campaign, they have to kind of raise money. And things are said that sometimes upset people. Uh, they're always asking for money, whatever. And they go to another church. And as soon as they hit that church, that church starts to have a building campaign. You know, you can't get away from it. If there's an issue in our heart, God isn't going to let us just run away from this thing. We know with Jonah, when he tried to run away with it, he ended up in other troubles. You can't just run away from these things. Churches have troubles. They have dynamics that go on. They're like families. And you can't just run from a family and think, oh, well, you know, I'll go marry that other woman and everything will then be blissful and wonderful. Well, after a few years, you find out that, you know, you're just back to the beginning, but worse. It's worse than what it was. And this is what many people do. We feel that we can just just put this stuff and, and just leave and go on. We can't get away from it. This was a particular stage. And families, at sometimes everything is going well. And at other times, there's some troubles that go on. But you stick together. Same with churches. And then in verse 47, in, in Acts chapter 2, Verse 47, and they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, so you see they were praising God and they were having favor with all the people. This is a great church. This means that even the, the Jews, you know, kind of accepted these, these Jews who had started following this, this guy Jesus and had started uh, uh, having these different practices and and so they were having favor with all the people. Everything was going well. Well, not forever. Look in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So you see, in Acts chapter 8, one of the members of the church is killed by the Jews in Jerusalem. You think he's still having favor with all the people? And a great persecution arises, so much so, that they take these, these Jewish Christians and start saying, get out of here. Well, in Acts chapter 2, they're having favor with all the people. And then all of a sudden, they're not having favor with all the people. Same church. Church in Jerusalem. Dynamics change. Things change. So when you're part of a church, you stick with this thing. You see it on through, unless they're teaching some sort of heresy. And a lot of times, if you're an active member in the church, you can go to the pastor and say, explain this to me. I don't understand this. Could you show me in the scriptures where it talks about this sort of thing? And then explain your point to him. And begin to do this. This is part of the dynamic of a church. This is part of being part of a church. You don't just say, oh, I'm frustrated with this message and get up and leave. Go make an appointment to meet with the pastor and talk with them about it. This church, I'll tell you, uh, uh, this church that we are in takes this so seriously that when I have questions about what was taught, you know, I'll call up and talk with the pastor and right away he'll want to get together with lunch. And he just, just zeroes his eyes in on me so intensely I feel funny because he wants to listen so intently to what I have to say 
and what my concerns are. And he doesn't just dismiss it. And he takes it almost, I feel funny bringing things up because he takes it so seriously and to such an extreme, you know, he wants to backtrack so much. And maybe he was right. I'm just trying to get a sense for why he said this. You you see what I mean? People are willing to, to hear this and they want to hear this. And this is part of working together. You don't just run off and leave. Or else you're going to want, want to run off and leave every time something at work goes wrong. You're going to want to think, oh, well, I've I got I to gotta leave and go to another company. Or else every time something in a relationship goes wrong, you think you've got to find another relationship and get out of this thing. This is part of life. It is part of working together. Very often the problem is mine. Most of the problems in my home are because of me. It's not because of other people. It's instigated because of me. Shireen is, is much more loving and much more passive and much more compliant than I am. I'm always starting in on something. So I know that. The problem's mine. And so I've got to learn to work with this. And thankfully, she doesn't leave me. Thankfully, you know, she bears with me on this thing. This is the way churches are. All right, now let's move into Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, reading from verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Okay, so Jews had two mandatory hours of prayer, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Now, mandatory wasn't that it was in Scripture. This was in their Mishnaic law, and many Jews observed this. They would go at 9 a.m. up to the temple to pray. They would go at 3 p.m. to pray. And there was also the optional 12 noon to pray as well. And during this time, the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., they happen to be going up and praying. So, so Peter and John are going up and observing their prayers. So there was no problem with them being now followers of Jesus, being Jews, and still observing the same hour of prayer. There was no problem with this. Sometimes it bothers Christians that Jewish converts to Jews who, who, who accept Jesus as their Lord still keep certain Jewish practices. But if you read in the book of Acts, Jews who came to know Jesus kept many of their Jewish practices and it really was no problem having that going on. And so they were going up at this fixed hour. There's no problem with us taking upon ourselves a fixed hour. To put my fixed hour of prayer upon you is legalism. But for me, upon my own self, to fix an hour of prayer is fine. And I do that. I wake up at a certain hour very early in the morning and I do that. That is my time that I spend with the Lord. And I love it and I treasure that time. And then I wake up my family at 5.30 in the morning and we have our own family devotions at 5.30 in the morning. And and I'm not putting that upon you. I put that upon my own family. That's what we do together as a family. And then... At work, I have the, the, the great blessing of being able to always work on a college campus where there's a chapel, and at noontime or somewhere around my lunch break, I will often go to the chapel and I can get on my knees and pray, because it's an area on campus that if you're on your knees, you know, you only look a little bit strange. You're in the chapel, so people understand. And, you know, sometimes my colleagues, one colleague saw me coming out of the chapel, and he says, what were you doing in there? I said, oh, I go in there around noontime to pray. He says, oh... That's good. That's real good. The only thing they ever use that thing for is weddings and funerals. So it's good to know someone goes in there and prays. And so, you know, you you just have a set time. It is good to do this. It is not wrong, but it's something you put upon yourself. It's not legalism that we put our hour, our hour upon another. So they were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. 
And in verse 2, And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When they saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright, and he began to walk, and he entered into the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So, as Peter and John are going in, They see this man who had habitually been set there to beg alms at this gate, this particular gate. uh, 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 It was called the beautiful gate. It's it's actually between the court of the Gentiles, where converts to Judaism could go and worship, and, and the court of the women, it was called. There was this gate, the beautiful gate, and it was at that gate where, where this man was sitting. And it says that, that, uh, um, when he saw Peter and John going into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. Well, what, what is the guy doing begging alms at a gate in the temple? Well, actually, it's a very smart place to go because you're going in to pray. And, you, you know, your conscience is going to be kind of twisted a bit if, you know, you walk by a guy who's lame and he's begging and you, you know, you just blow by him without giving him something. And here you are about to go and pray. So it's actually, you know, strategically a good place to beg. And if you go to Jerusalem now, you will find many beggars there around the temple. And they sit there, and you go there the next day, and it's the same beggar at the same place, and the same location, and, and, and uh, you know, you, you, you kind of feel like, okay, I'm you know, at this really spiritual place, you know, Jesus used to walk here, and you, you feel kind of obliged to give them something. And so it's a good place to go, and it says that this man had been lame from his mother's womb, so he had never walked before. And we learn later on in the chapter that he was over 40 years old. So he was over 40 years old. He had never walked. He had habitually been set there. There is a good chance that Jesus had walked by him many times. Jesus was in this temple all the time. This guy had habitually been set there. Why didn't Jesus heal him? Well, maybe Jesus knew that Peter and John were going to do a great work with this man. Did Jesus heal everyone in Jerusalem? Apparently not. Not everyone was being healed by Jesus. I mean, there were some that he came in contact with and some he didn't heal. And it says, when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, in verse 3, he was asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze and said, look at us. This is unusual. Usually... You know, all of us have given money to people who, who, who have asked for, for donations or something. And, and uh, it's rare that we engage them right in the eye. You know, you know, kind of pull out some money and put it in there. And personally, what I do is because, you know, when I see these guys on the corner, I don't know what they're going to do with the money. I always keep raisins in my car, these boxes of sun-kissed 
raisins or whatever they are, sun-made raisins, and I give them a couple of boxes of raisins. So I know that I've fed them. I know that I've done what I'm supposed to do. And never have I had a guy get upset with me about giving them raisins. In fact, they know me as the guy who gives raisins. They say, hey, thank you, I like these things. And, and, you know, a person can live a day on a couple of boxes of raisins. And so I know that I've, I've taken care of the guy and I've done what I'm supposed to do. And, and they can sit in the car, you know, for months, and the raisins are still good. I mean, that's the other good thing about them. They're, they're non-perishable. So, he said, look at us, fixing his gaze at him, and he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. So, two guys are going to stand there, and they say, look at us. This guy thinks that something special, this is going to be an extra large gift. You know, they're going to give him like, like a hundred dollar bill or something. They're, they're, you know, these guys' consciences are, are, are really been touched. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene walk. So you see in verse 44 up in, in chapter 2, uh, that they, in verse 45, that they were selling their property and possessions and sharing with all anyone who might have need. And if you turn over to Acts chapter 4, in verse 34... It says, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. The apostles had access at this time in the Jerusalem church to great wealth was being laid at their feet. And Peter, and Peter says, Gold and silver I, have I none. I don't have any gold and silver. Although he controlled great amounts of money that were being laid at his feet, he didn't assume any of that for himself. And in fact, Peter was a poor man. He said, gold and silver I don't have. So although he controlled great amounts of money that were being laid at his feet at this time in the Jerusalem church, which was never told by us to do in the, in the epistles. In fact, it said rich people are to be generous. The last thing you want to do is clear out rich people of their money so that they have no capability to make money anymore and, and bless the church. You want rich people to get richer who are generous so that they can continue, continue to be a blessing. But he says, he says here, I don't possess gold or silver. What do you mean you don't possess it? I mean, these people are just selling their stuff and laying it at your feet. And Peter says, that's not mine to distribute like this. I don't assume that for myself. Peter, in fact, was a very poor man. In fact, there's a, there's a true story, and it concerns Pope Innocent II and a, and a, a rather famous guy in, in theological terms, Thomas Aquinas, where, where a, a large gift had been given to the church, and, and Pope Innocent is counting this gift when Thomas Aquinas comes in, and he says, he says to, to Thomas, Thomas, you see, no longer can the church say, gold and silver have I none. And Thomas Aquinas said, and neither can the church say, arise and walk. And so, you, you know, there's, there's an interesting dynamic here that occurs with, with, with this, that Peter has no money. He's a poor man, but what he says is, I have something better for you. He says, arise and walk. But the man doesn't get up and start walking. It says that Peter had to take him by the right hand... And raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. So he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his hand, his feet and his ankles were strengthened. 
Why? Because the man had never walked before. You say to a person who's never walked before, walk. I mean, the brain just doesn't register. It doesn't work. Peter knew that God was going to do a miraculous work, and this was a miraculous work. It doesn't happen all the time. It really doesn't. And if you think you can go up to all sorts of lame people and proclaim this, I pray to God that every one of them would be healed. I'm not sure that that would take place, though. This was a unique instance, this work that was being done through the apostles. And he pulled them up, and it says, by the right hand. This, uh, this book of Acts was written by Luke. Luke cites his former work, the, the, the Gospel according to Luke. Some people say Luke didn't write this. Luke had to write this. Luke, it says, was a physician. You know, when, when I say take them by the hand, I never say take them by the right hand, take them by the left hand. Physicians do this. Physicians are taught you always name the, 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 the limb that's being looked at. Because, you know, physicians say, you know, we have to amputate the thumb on the right hand. You can't just say amputate the thumb because they don't know which thumb. They're very specific about which limb. And you see this in the book of Luke. You see this in the book of Acts because it was written by a physician. It says he, he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Only a physician would write that. I mean, to talk about, you know, we'd say, and strength came in his legs. No, his feet and his ankles were strengthened. This is very specific. You, you know, you can tell the writings of a scientist. Writings of scientists are, you know, they're very analytical in, in their logical thought, and it causes troubles for scientists sometimes. Some, you, you know, the other day I was talking to my mother when we were on vacation, and she said something, and then, then she said something else. I said, that doesn't logically follow. And I was trying to follow the logic of this, and finally she says, what you just forget about your logic? I mean, I just made a statement, and then I made another statement. Oh, Okay, <laughs> you know? and, and so you can see the pattern of the way this man is writing. He says his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And, and, and this man starts to walk. And with a leap, it says he leaped up, he stood upright, he began to walk. You know, so, so again, you can see that this is, this is a physician here. He had stood upright, he began to walk. Anybody else would say, and the guy started walking. You know, this guy describes his feet, describes his ankle, describes which hand he's being pulled up with, describes his posture. You know, he's not walking around hunched over, but, you, you know, we don't think that way. But physicians, you know, when they, when they hear about this story, they're wondering what's going on here. Not only did he start to walk, he's standing upright and walking. He's not all curled over. Here's a guy who has never stood up before. Here's a guy who has never walked, and he's standing upright. You know, this isn't this sort of thing where, where, where something, somebody's gradually healed over a period of years. This was miraculous. He's standing upright, and he's walking, and then it says, and he's leaping and praising God. So now the guy is jumping. Not only had he never jumped, he never walked, nothing, and now he's jumping. He's leaping up in the air, and he's praising God, and everyone is taking note that this is the guy who used to sit at the beautiful gate. So we know it must have happened a lot. He must have sat there for years. This is the same guy. They couldn't deny it. There was no denial here. When you go to Jerusalem today, it's the same person on the same step is sitting there, and you go there the next day, it's the same old lady there. And you go to their next lady day, it's the same old lady sitting there. It's the same here in Houston. At certain corners, you see the same person 
week after week, year after year. You know, there's the same person on the same corner. And, and uh, this, is, this is the guy. They recognized him. He was always there. He was over 40 years old, so he'd probably been there decades. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And now in verse 11. And while they were clinging to Peter, while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, or the colonnade of Solomon, full of amazement. That's the, it's called the colonnade or portico of Solomon because there was an area that was left from Solomon's temple that had not been torn down and they just built right on top of that. So it was called the portico of Solomon. And when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? And why do you gaze at us? As if by our own power or piety, we made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. By, but you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the Prince of Life, the One whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in His name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man, whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through Him, was given him has given Him this perfect health in the presence of you all. So this man actually didn't just have his feet and his ankles strengthened, and it wasn't just standing upright. Peter says, by the way, Jesus has given this man perfect health. I mean, this guy in all respects was perfect. This was an amazing miracle. Jesus healed this guy from head to toe, everything. And it says that when Peter saw the people, in verse 12, he replied. So he saw this gathering of people just as he had seen in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, whenever Peter saw a gathering of people, he couldn't help himself. He started to preach. And he, there was this gathering of people, and he started to preach. And then he says to them, why, he says, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, or why do you gaze at us, as if by our own power and piety? Right away, he takes that amazement of people that they are now giving, giving the glory to Peter and John and, to, and turning that away from himself and from John to Jesus. Right away, the first thing he does, he says, it is not me. It is not John. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. Let me tell you how insidious pride is. I can cry out on my knees that God would fill me to speak on a Sunday in this class. I come in and sometimes I think, I have no message, I have nothing. And I'll go in a little room over there, just down the hall, and say, Lord, what do you want me to say today? I have read this text a hundred times, and I don't know what to bring forth today. God, fill me and empower me. And I get up here, and God, all of a sudden, as I'm reading this with you, God gives me a message. And then when I'm done, I think, I did pretty well. You see how insidious pride is? I'm on my knees crying out for God to help me. And then it's so easy for me to just take the glory. This is how wicked pride is. And right away, Peter knows how wicked this can be. And right away, he wants to deflect it. He says, it's not me. You're looking at the wrong guy. 
It's this Jesus who happens to be the Jesus that you denied, who happens to be the Jesus that Pilate was going to let go, but you didn't want him to be let go, who happens to be the Jesus that was spoken of by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That means the God of the covenant. Whenever he says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's speaking of the covenant to Israel. Who happens to be the Prince of Life. It says in verse 15 that you put to death. I mean, how's this for rubbing it in? I mean, enough already. I know, alright? And Peter says... Oh, let me remind you, you're the folks who killed him, who put him to death. You put him to death. I mean, lighten up, Peter. I mean, Peter is just going with everything he's got, reminding them that they are the ones that killed Jesus. He says, and it's on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, which has strengthened this man, whom you see... And know, in verse 16, strengthen this man whom you see and know. In other words, you know this guy. You see him and you know him. You can't deny it. You can't say, oh, you know, this was, uh, you know, this is just some, some evangelist and this was a setup. You know, the guy was, was, was set up here. He was a confederate that had, had come in and, and set this thing up. No, you can't say that. You know this guy. You know this beggar. He's not one of our group. You know him, and you can't deny it now. And his, God has made him in perfect health. And verse 17, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as you rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets, that this Christ would suffer, has, thus, has been thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So in verse 17 he says, I know, brethren, that you acted in ignorance. When you had Jesus killed, you acted in ignorance. But ignorance is not an excuse. Ignorance does not pardon us. What ignorance does is it provides a basis for God's mercy upon repentance. Ignorance provides a basis for God's mercy upon repentance. Ignorance in itself does not pardon us. And we'll pick up this next time and talk more about this. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word, for your scriptures. And Father, I pray for these young people that you would give them good homes and good marriages. And Father, that no matter what has been imaged to them in growing up, that they would, they would not leave their homes, they would not throw away their marriages if things aren't working out, but they would see that there are seasons in homes, in families, and in churches. Father, that you would knit them in, in the right churches, in the right places, and that you would cause them to be committed, and that they would learn what it is to work through problems, And learn about the seasons in life that occur. And learn about the hard times that come into families. And then the glorious times. Father, I pray that you teach them your ways. Lord, I pray that you teach them to be right with money. 
Lord, as, as Peter didn't take to himself things that didn't belong to him, and that Peter himself was a poor man, he had no silver, he had no gold, he possessed none of that. Father, I pray that you would cause these young people to set their priorities right. That in spite of what they may have or not have, they wouldn't set anything else before you, but that it would be you, Jesus, in their lives. Father, that if you should grant them riches, that they would learn to be generous and learn to be giving. And if, Father, they should not be granted riches, Father, that they would learn to be thankful for what they have in Jesus. Lord, I pray for your work in their lives. Father, have mercy upon their hearts. And Lord, I pray especially that you would grant them good homes, good marriages, that they wouldn't have to experience that pain of divorce. And Lord, Lord, that they'd learn to wait on you for the right person. And Lord, learn to wait on you to see you work through the hard times. May your graciousness be there. And I commit them to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.